Our guests today talk about the next big transition in modern medicine, the move to human proteomics. Start your tricorders. It's Futures in Biotech. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Futures in Biotech is provided by Cashfly at cashfly.com. This is Futures in Biotech, episode 75. It's time to start the human proteome. This episode of Futures in Biotech is brought to you by Kaleidograph, a thoughtfully designed graphing and data analysis application for research scientists, as well as those in business and engineering fields. Try Kaleidograph for 45 days risk-free. Receive a 20% discount if you purchase Kaleidograph within the next 60 days. Visit www.synergy.com forward slash podcast.htm for more details. I believe that biotech is the next frontier. Probably the greatest intellectual revolution that's ever taken place uh, in man's history. DNA is the code for life. We're actually beginning to understand how life works, which I think is something that's mind-blowing in and of itself. There was uh, going to be a genetic component for aging. How long was there to be the extension? About 30, 40% for humans. That would equate to something like 20 to 30 years. How close are we to actually having a therapy of Ballpark. Welcome to Futures in Biotech. Today, we're going to talk about proteomics. Um, this is going to be one of the hardcore versions of the Futures in Biotech. Uh, we're talking to two really smart guys. Um, they're, um, they proposed a paper, and this is what got me to... Uh, to, to let's, let's start over on three, <laughs> two, one, if we can. Welcome to Futures in Biotech. I'm Mark Peltier. Today, uh, we have a very interesting show coming, uh, uh, coming on, and we're, we're going to talk about proteomics. And I believe this is the next stage of modern medicine. And our, our guests proposed a paper, uh, it was in September, in Nature Met Methods. And uh, they suggested that mass spectrometry was ready for the big time. Um, this is kind of a historical paper, in my opinion. It's, it's much like uh, the early work that led to initiating the Human Genome Project, except in many ways it's more ambitious. It is really hardcore. So um, put on your thinking caps and uh, hang on tight. It, just to uh, give you a heads up too, it took me about three years uh, before I started understanding what one of our guests was talking about. He um, never dumbed anything down. And it was a great sort of mentoring strategy in that it allowed us to uh, try to get to his level and uh, understanding of the human uh, anatomy and how we work. Um, so our first guest is Dr. John Bergeron. He's professor and chair of the Department of Anatomy and Cell Biology at McGill University. Uh, he's a, a member and an active uh, a member of the Canadian Proteomics Network. He's a former president of the Human Proteome Organization. Uh, and co-founder of Caprion Proteomics. He invented uh, their, te their main technology called Cellcarta. He was also uh, a guest on Futures in Biotech episode 12, and I think it was 17, the Singularity episode. Uh, welcome to the show, John. Oh, I'm glad to be uh, present again, Mark. 
Um, our next guest also is uh, at McGill. His name is uh, Dr. Tommy Nielsen. He's professor in the Department of Medicine. Um, and he's also a Canada Research Chair in Proteomics and Systems Medicine. Uh, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much. I'm very happy to be part of this. Well, it, this is, you know, it, it took some uh, ambition and, and, and guts and foresight and sort of a very positive outlook uh, to make, uh, to propose what you guys are proposing. So perhaps you could uh, tell us a little bit about uh, how you got involved in proteomics and uh, where you see it going and, and what led to, the, to writing this paper. John? So, okay. Tommy? It's, it's okay. Tommy? I, don't, I, I, mean, uh, uh, I, I think uh, uh, John is the uh, uh, person with the more history on this. Uh, we have, uh, can just mention, I've been uh, pulled into this uh, during the last uh, five years. Uh, much uh, through through uh, through John Bergeron, and uh, we have had a series of um, uh, workshops in uh, Barbados, uh, which sounds very uh, exotic, but uh, we actually don't see much of the sun when we are there and we're working. Uh, this is in January. Uh, the uh, thing uh, which we have been uh, uh, doing uh, is to try to come up with a project to move proteomics uh, forward and this was a call made by the uh, European Commission uh, to try to get the proteomics community to implement standards and show that they can work in a coherent manner and uh, that was a starting point and from that when we met and we discussed etc it then evolved into something that became a prelude uh, for a, uh, a, a human proton project and that has uh, had a set, a set of um, uh, workshops uh, in Barbados and other meetings, super meetings etc and uh, really to try to define uh, what is what is a human proton project? It's not really obvious to everyone uh, what can be done in a human proton project, etc., and uh, how we should go about. And uh, we are not, how do you say, on, on uh, uh, at an end point in, ter in terms of defining this. We are still in a very early stage, and I like always to point out the uh, history of the Human Genome Project, which uh, started sometime in 1985, uh, followed by a very, very important uh, workshop in Los Alamos in 1986, uh, which produced a white paper on the human genome. And uh, uh, you can see uh, on the white paper that we have produced, uh, which is on the HUPA web page, uh, that uh, we are in, in, in more or less at the same stage and in the same spirit. Uh, so I think uh, uh, we will go to get to the details of what we are proposing, but uh, I'd like to uh, everyone to have that in the back of the mind, uh, their mind that we are at the discussion and uh, design stage at, uh, at the moment. John? Yeah, go ahead, John. So... Um you asked about how we got into this and why we're doing this. So Tommy and I are both trained as cell biologists and we've had the great opportunity 
to figure out some machinery in the cell, which no one else had stumbled across. And we had done this before. We're very lucky to do this at relatively early stages in our career. And we focus on the inner workings of the cell by looking at the different compartments of the cell. And it didn't take us long to figure out that mass spectrometry seemed to have been designed specifically to answer all our unknown questions about what made up the proteins in these structures and how the cell was put together and how the cell worked. So that's the strategy that Tommy and I have followed. And by doing that, we've gained tremendous biological insight through the proteins that we've been able to characterize. But on the other hand, we've stumbled across what we think is the strategy that can be used to map the entire human proteome and give functional significance to the proteins as we're characterizing them. So technically, the issue is one of reproducibility, sensitivity uh, of the protein characterization in the samples that you're giving to the mass spectrometer. And the mass spectrometer has such a fabulous mass accuracy that it will actually uh, read out for you, it does it in an indirect way, the primary sequences of peptides in proteins, because that's what you present to the mass spectrometer or the peptides, in a quantitative way. And uh, it will do it over and over and over again for you, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So this is fabulous, providing you can give it the kind of samples that match the characteristics of the mass spectrometer. And those characteristics, the greatest limitation, is a limited dynamic range of about three orders of magnitude. Let me ask you, before we get into the details of, of, of sort of the technology, I'd, I'd like to say, take it down to or maybe up to 37,000 feet and then we'll bring it down right. uh, slowly a little bit and, and, and the reason why I still want to know the context of uh, how this compares to the Human Genome Project has the Human Genome Project made it easy for you or hard for you and then how does this compare to perhaps uh, you know uh, gene expression profiling which is the gene chips and then you've got proteomics maybe the, start with the first question how does this compare to the Human Genome Project? What kind of information versus the Genome Project uh, will this provide? So, uh, uh, jump in, Tommy, uh, whenever you want. So, one of the major deliverables of the Human Genome Project is an estimate of how many genes we have in each of the cells in our body. And that estimate has actually only been nailed down as of late 2008-2009 to be roughly 20,300 protein coding genes and this is still undergoing cha uh, change and reassessment. So, so that's 23,000 20, 20,300. 20,300. So we've got 23,000 different 20,300. 20, 20,300. 20, yes. 23,000. 20, Let's just round Sorry. it up to 20,000. By the way, I'm going to Mention it to the audience right now because we, uh, you guys are in Montreal. We have two people in Montreal. We're in Cal I'm in uh, Cleveland, and we're, pi we're piping through Skype in California. So there's about a one second lag. So we're so kind of trying to, to interject. It, it, be, it sounds like a, a major interruption. So I apologize for interrupting in, um, with this lag. But so we have twenty thousand three hundred or twenty yeah twenty thousand three hundred. Yeah, let's just round it up to twenty thousand. All right, twenty thousand 20, parts. 
That's right. And so that is a major deliverable of the human genome. However, the you, evidence... John, John, yes. so, so do you want to put that in context with, uh, with uh, the uh, fruit fly? Yeah, go ahead. No, I'm just, uh, um, we, we uh, okay, we don't have wings and we don't have uh, uh, six legs and a uh, uh, thousand uh, eye, eye facets, uh, but uh, I, I think uh, it, it, we, we put it in context of 20,300 uh, genes. Uh, the fruit fly has something uh, uh, which you could average up to 15,000. So uh, uh, that, I think, gives you a sense of, what the genome has done for us because it really has defined a number which is not, uh, I would say, astronomical in terms of uh, 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 having a genome, a human genome as a reference, uh, but uh, you have at the same time to uh, uh, appreciate the complexity that comes within all the different variants of each gene, which we will come to later, but uh, that sets us apart from the fruit fly and uh, and uh, other uh, organisms. So we're five thousand genes more complex than a fruit fly. Yes, twenty-five <laughs> percent uh, more complex. But but let's uh, let's consider what we don't know. So so we have an estimate of twenty thousand genes in the human, and that is a deliverable from the Human Genome Project. The uh, question now is, what evidence do we have for what these genes are doing? And let's take the smallest chromosome, chromosome 21, which is one of my favorite chromosomes, and look at the databases, including this most pristine database, which has given us our best estimate of how many uh, genes are in the human genome, and there it predicts to have slightly more than 200 genes in chromosome 21. That's all. However, there's only evidence for 148 of these genes that actually make protein. This is not to say that the other genes do not make protein. It's just that there's no methods to detect them, um, uh, even including for many of those genes... RNA expression. So you have to appreciate that in the 250 or so different cell lineages in our human body, many proteins will be long-lived and will be present in a small number of cells, and they will, by definition, be very difficult to capture if you're doing RNA expression profiling from whole organs or tissue or fluids or whatnot. However, if you're able to reach into those cells that are expressing the protein and grab the compartments where they're present at highest concentration, which is what Tommy and I are paid to do, then you get them at very high abundance. So you can now go in and take these 20,000 or so predicted protein coding genes, of which approximately half have some evidence for a protein, and now actually figure out where each and every protein is expressed and um, directly where it's located, what its protein partners are, and most importantly, what its splice isoforms are, its state of glycosylation, and its state of phosphorylation. These are the things that we can do right now with proteomics. Wow, and so that is quite different to what the human genome has given us which is a fabulous foundation.
So it looks like you picked the right horse to follow. Right? Over yes, genomics. I mean, <laughs> but that's, that's just what, what we do as cell biologists, right? We, we, we follow the technology which gives us the most information with the samples that we have. I guess if you're looking at the genome, you're always questioning, oh, well, here's a new gene. It's really interesting, but what does it do? I don't know. But if you take it with your approach, take the cell, crack it open into its multiple parts, then crack it open until its atomic molecules or to its the molecular level, you know what it is by the fact that where you got it, right? If it's in the kidney and you cracked open the kidney cell, cracked open the, the kidney organelles inside the cell and then separated the proteins, you know that they're all kidney. Yes, not only that, but also by doing that methodology, you now have the proteins at a very high abundance, fitting the technology. Tommy actually put in this Nature Methods paper, had a very nice analogy to how you would follow this strategy using the analogy of building a skyscraper. So I'm going to let Tommy take you through the skyscraper analogy, if that's all right. I, I will do that. I, I just want to make uh, one uh, small point, and, and that is that I mean, you say uh, we're betting on the right horse, etc. The thing is, uh, first of all, as John also uh, pointed out, uh, the, the genome is really the foundation, and without the genome, we would have no reference. And we would have been talking, well, maybe there are 50,000 different ones or 100,000 uh, uh, different ones, as they thought before. Uh, really, it's, the, it's because that the genome that we can place it now uh, uh, around 20,000. But the, the genome and genomics uh, plays a very, very important role in defining all the different types of variants that exist for each and every gene. Uh, these were, could be, I'm not now thinking about the isoforms, etc., but I'm thinking about uh, in every person we will have small mutations uh, that uh, sets each gene apart from individual to individual. These are called uh, SNPs. And, uh, uh, of course, knowing these SNPs and having them mapped out gives also then, uh, uh, in, in many cases, a... a uh, relevance at the protein level and uh, these are very much uh, the foundation for disease uh, uh, and, and disease biology so having the genome uh, the genome having the genomics having the transcriptomics having the proteomics and there is also metabolomics uh, uh, you really have to see these as complementary uh, approaches uh, and, and uh, I, I, don't, I don't want to say that one of these is much better than the other. They really are there to complement each other. But what, with proteomics, we can do a lot uh, that you can't do with the other techniques. That's, that's uh, uh, a given. So, so uh, uh, and, and in disease relevance, in drug development, etc., uh, most, if not all, of the uh, treatments that we have, the, the drugs, etc., they are against proteins. So, so uh, proteins are, in that respect, very relevant in terms of uh, uh, the clinical and, and medical and biomedical uh, uh, aspects. So, uh, back then to how we envisage uh, how you could go forward in trying to, to set up a... Uh, 
a human uh, proteome, uh, we really then fall back to the uh, genome. And uh, that would be like, uh, uh, as John said, and what we proposed uh, is like a, a skyscraper. And uh, uh, that is the building itself, is, is uh, the, uh, the genome. And uh, what every room uh, in that building represents is uh, one of these 20,300 uh, genes. So uh, if you have that uh, building in place, then over time, if it's within the next five years or 10 years or 100 years or 1,000 years, depending on how much details you want to put in, you can furnish each one of these rooms uh, uh, in 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 any way you want and and uh, that is the whole uh, rationale for what we call uh, taking a gene centric approach uh, to the human genome uh, project so that is uh, uh, i i have a engineering training as as a background and that's how i think about things and uh, i think this uh, in this uh, way we can make sense of the enormous complexity that a human proteome really uh, represents one thing that i'm thinking about if i was in the future and i was coming back in time where would i want to stop and feel safe in terms of uh, modern medicine if, you, if I went back into the 90s where we had, or late 90s and early 2000s where we had the human genome, I'd be scared if, if, if I'd come from a, an, era, an era that had the entire proteome. Would I be fair to say that the, the, the true transition in medicine will happen once we get every element of detail from the human, uh, the human proteome project? Is this where it's going inevitably? Um, so, so go ahead, Tommy. Well, yeah, I was waiting for you, but okay, I'll, I'll just give my uh, take on the whole thing. If you come back for the future, uh, really uh, the modern medicine, as we call it today, which will be not, not be modern 20 years from now, because a lot of things will have changed. And the one major thing that will change is that we're going from prescribing drugs that are uh, general, that will fit, uh, one shoe fits all, to having uh, drugs that are more tailored to the individual because everyone is not the same. So everyone will not uh, 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 respond in the same way to uh, these uh, uh, more general drugs. So if you want to uh, increase your uh, say efficacy, you want to increase your effectiveness overall in treatment, uh, even increase your abilities to diagnose and, and uh, for, for prognosis, then we are moving into something which is called personalized medicine. And uh, we really there uh, need to, def to very accurately phenotype the individual patient. Uh, and there, of course, you would ideally like to use uh, all that genomics uh, uh, gives you as a possibility. So if I came back from the future, uh, I, I would then be able to tell that 20, 10 years from now or five years from now or 20 years from now, we can do this. We can have uh, individuals genome on a, on a, on a chip. Uh, we can uh, do very nicely uh, the transcriptome for particular tissue of interest and we can do the uh, the blood and we can do the uh, proteome of the tissue, etc. 
in such a way that we can, in the best possible way for that particular patient, uh, then define the type of treatment that the patient should have. So maybe um, I can just bring us down to something really defined. If there's someone coming back from the future and you want to chart progress in human medicine through these technologies. So I, I want to keep taking us back to chromosome 21. Uh, chromosome 21, again, is the smallest chromosome. It has less than 200 proteins. We can figure this out right now. But let's look at the challenges. Everyone, I believe, in your audience is aware of someone or is certainly aware of trisomy of chromosome 21 that leads to Down syndrome. And even though... Uh, there are screening procedures in place. We still have about one to two births per thousand in North America, which is still enormous. And immediately we see that these infants have cardiovascular defects, but they also, a separate cohort of them, have leukemias and a special subtype of leukemias, and they have problems with their immune system as well, especially with respect to the thymus. And yet, we have no mechanistic explanation of why these, these, um, uh, these diseases are progressing due to chromosome 21. Remember, it's the smallest number of genes, right? Right. And and would, can you explain what trisomy is exactly? What so happens to that chromosome? Trisomy would be, sorry, would be three copies of the, um, uh, of the chromosome instead of the normal 2N. You would have uh, 3N of, of, uh, of the chromosome. And, and so now it's simply having more proteins expressed. That's all, that's all that happens when you have trisomy of chromosome 21. And so consequently, for only that chromosome, remember, it's only 100 and right now about 200, it's only 10% of the human genome. And yet we have these devastating effects on these infants for which we have no mechanistic explanation. But by understanding the proteome of what those genes are, are, are encoding for, and remember, we still have at least, um, at least uh, 50 to, to uh, uh, about almost 50% of the genes that we have yet to uncover in terms of what the proteins are doing for that chromosome, we should be able to figure out mechanistically what's going on with these leukemias, these acute myelogenous leukemias that these patients have as a consequence of this, and even get into the broader population of patients that have acute myelogenous leukemias that they get not from Down syndrome, but just normally as they develop cancers, because what's less well known is a large proportion of those patients have only in their cancers trisomy or tetrasomy of chromosome 21, not in the rest wow. of their cells. So there's a link between chromosome 21 and these chronic myelogenous leukemias where we can now elucidate exactly how that leukemia is put together and what's going on with it to give us some insight into cancer. The other aspect of this is that these patients, or the Down syndrome children that have the leukemias, never develop solid tumors. So lurking in that, in that chromosome 
is some sort of a powerful suppressor of solid tumors. So these are unbelievable benefits that the proteome can deliver us right now, even if we just launch the mapping of the proteins from chromosome 21, which as I said, are only a couple of hundred or so to be uncovered. So certainly you'll be able to chart if the chromosome 21 project is completed, exactly what mechanistic insight and clinical relevance have we obtained from mapping the, the proteins in that chromosome in this gene-centric effort, in the effort to fill up the rooms in Tommy's skyscraper, where now 200 or so will be filled up, with immediate clinical relevance developed. And that would be the paradigm for the impact of this kind of information on the clinical and biological community. Because so far these problems are unresolved, both at the basic biology level and at the clinical level. You, could, you have to get started yesterday. I, I, I'm, so yes, I'm glad you guys are going through this. We're ready to go. Okay, so let's take a, a minute. We're going to take a minute to thank our, our sponsor, and then we'll come back and talk about the, the, the uh, chromosome 21 uh, uh, version of the pilot project of the proteome project that you want to present. I think it's, uh, it's an amazing uh, first step. And, but before we do, I'm going to uh, thank Kaleidograph for sponsoring uh, this episode of Futures in Biotech. Clydograph is a thoughtfully designed graphing and data analysis application for research scientists, business professionals, and engineers. It produces publication quality graphs and easily converts the most complex data into a functional display. Um, statistics, linear, nonlinear, nonlinear curve fitting, and the ability to produce precise graphic visualization of data all make Clydograph powerful and flexible. Since 1988, Clydograph has been an easy to learn graphing and analysis program with a surprisingly affordable price. I've actually been using it probably since 1996 and it was so easy to use and actually so powerful that I never actually uh, got around to learning Excel to any great extent. Sure, I could flip some cells around, but uh, you know, if you need to do mathematics, you need to present scientific data, you need to present convincing data, you really need a, a solid uh, uh, application. This was not expensive. Um, every graduate student should have it. Um, and another thing that it does really, really well is curve fitting. If, if, you, if you ever try to do a curve fitting in Excel, it's horrible. You're just going to bang your head on the wall. You're going to spend six or seven hours looking for a plug-in on the internet through Google. And, you know, you'll always get to, oh, you'll get a polynomial. But what if your model isn't a polynomial? <laughs> you know, it's only a handful of tools. Well, Clydograph has them all. You can model the, with the equation you want, easy code. It's the really, they come up, they give you a whole bunch of equations to start with. So if you want to do curve fitting, it's absolutely fantastic. We use it in the lab every day. We use it as our primary tool. It's in our workflow to analyze data from cell-based assays. So um, it's really, really fun. You can do Michaelis Benton stuff. You can do anything with it. So if try Clydograph for 45 days risk-free. And if you purchase Clydograph within the next 60 days, you'll receive a 20% discount. Visit www.synergy.com forward slash podcast htm for more details. All right, um, that's done. So we're good. We're good to go. Um, so, John, that, that was very, um, very nice explanation as to some of the power uh, or some of the information that could be acquired from uh, doing the human proteome. Am I right to say that the human proteome would be kind of like the Google map of the human body down to the atomic level? Tommy, Once I'll let completed. you handle that with respect to your skyscraper model. 
Okay, I, I, I want to point out that when we talk about proteomics, uh, we have different approaches within proteomics, and, and uh, uh, both uh, John and I are very much uh, uh, in favor of using mass spectrometry for proteomics. And that uh, the reason for that is that uh, we get immediate insight in the, into the details of each protein that we are uh, uh, analyzing uh, in our sample. But complementary to that, within the realm of proteomics, uh, there are other uh, technologies uh, or approaches, and uh, one very big approach uh, right now is, is uh, the one undertaken in uh, in Sweden through Matthias Julen called the uh, Human Atlas Project. And there they take it upon themselves to map every protein in the human body, in the different tissues, using uh, uh, pristine antibodies. And uh, this is a very uh, ambitious uh, uh, undertaking. And uh, uh, what we, in our uh, discussions in Barbados, when we drafted this white paper, we envisaged the Human Proteome Project going forward uh, with a couple of different engines. The mass spectrometry will be one engine, uh, antibodies will be a second engine. Uh, we also have efforts where we look at protein-protein interactions, which will be a third engine. And uh, somehow uh, we will then uh, 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 not just distill the relevant information, but try to synthesize the information in a complementary way uh, through uh, uh, bioinformatics. And that um, uh, becomes a, a, a knowledge resource uh, then, which we would then term the Human Program Project, but constructed in such a way that we can add more and more information as we move forward. So, so uh, I think it's, it's important to keep that in, in, uh, in, uh, uh, in perspective because uh, a human proteome project uh, will only be successful through the applications that uh, that uh, will come from this and uh, uh, we need to know where proteins are within the cell within the tissue within the organs uh, within the body and uh, their antibodies plays a, a very important role but at the same time we need to know exactly which protein we are looking at what type of modifications are in the on the protein etc uh, uh, in that particular place so the two are very synergistic now how uh, do we then envisage this uh, uh, moving forward, uh, we had, and as I said in the beginning, uh, we had a call from the European Commission uh, to put together a community effort. This is the spirit uh, today, and I think will continue, uh, that uh, we will pool resources across the globe and then uh, try to, to, uh, to do our bits and pieces. The Chromosome 21 project in that context is uh, a uh, pilot project. It's a proof of principle that you can deliver immediate va uh, value, uh, that uh, we can show that we can work together, we can show that we can have synergy from the different type of programmics approaches as we have. So at the same time as we are 
uh, speaking now, uh, Matthias Julen through his antibodies efforts are mapping the proteins that are in chromosome 21 at, at, the, at the antibody level. So the two together, then we will have the spatial uh, uh, organization will have a very good idea of where the proteins are expressed. And at, uh, then we uh, have the mass spec uh, approach where we go in and we take every uh, bits and pieces of, of the different uh, tissue cells and, and parts of the cell. And we say, okay, this is the form which is expressed here of that particular protein. But it's, uh, it's, a, it's a project, even if we call it a pilot project, the chromosome 21 will be continued uh, uh, for for a very 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 long time to be uh, uh, the rooms of chromosome 21 the genes they will continue for a very very long time to be uh, furnished in 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 respect to looking at this as a room so more and more detail will be added more and more information will be added where they are expressed which forms etc and also of course uh, how this relates to to uh, to disease with the scale of this project, how does it compare to uh, uh, sequencing a chromosome, or how does it compare to the Human Genome Project as a, as such, in in size and cost? In, in, in size and cost, uh, you have to remember when the Human Genome uh, uh, <coughs> Project was was executed, they had a a, a budget of a billion dollars or more. Uh, now today it costs fifty thousand or less, and and we are we are approaching going down to tens of thousands, etc. Within a couple of years, in having a complete uh, uh, genome. So uh, the size and scale in terms of money for doing something like this is something that uh, uh, if we put the number on it today, let's say for chromosome twenty one, we would need maybe to do a realistic stab at it. To, something on, on the order of uh, uh, maybe 50 to 100 million dollars to do that. But uh, you can already do a portion of this. Uh, it depends on the detail, the level of details, etc., that you want to have. Uh, so if you say we're going to do chromosome 21 and we're going to do that in a number of tissues uh, uh, for some uh, countries that have picked chromosomes, they have decided to map them in tissue uh, cell lines uh, that are immortalized cell lines. Uh, it all depends on the level of uh, detail that you that you want. But uh, you already have the genome, which is the which is the building. Uh, so, how much furniture do you want to put into each room? That's really basically. <laughs> All, all of the, we're, we're never going to be there because uh, you have to appreciate that you have, if you take a, a, a typical gene will give rise to a typical protein. That protein will have splice isoforms. It will have uh, gene-derived um, isoforms. Uh, it will have all the, these different variants that can uh, comes through these um, genetic variations of, of the genes that I was referring to, which we termed SNPs, and, and here then amino acid-relevant SNPs. But on top of that, there is a whole universe, which is uh, uh, the post-translation modifications. And these are not, uh, some of them are binary in, in, uh, in, in form, that phosphorylation, you either have it or you don't, and you can have that on several 
residues within the protein. But if you take a, 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 a post-translation modification like glycosylation, glycosylation is enormous complexity. And, and uh, a, a, a protein in a given location can have one type of uh, glycosylation structure, but the same protein in a different location can have a completely different oligosaccharide structure, glycosylation structure. And these also uh, are structures that will change in relation to disease. So, so, so pick your number. It's uh, we, we, <laughs> the, 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 okay, the 100 billion. It's going to at least 10 billion, right? This is well, a, uh, well, let's, uh, that's where I think we need this uh, pilot project to see how much it costs for how much benefit and how much detail can we generate for how much cost. In fact, so there is an estimate out there that certainly using mass spectrometry methods and some antibodies to cross-check what the mass spectrometry is doing, that a preliminary estimate would be around $15 million now to get a first-pass coverage of the proteins of chromosome 21 in their major sites of expression in the major cell types of expression with their protein partners and with their glycosylation and phosphorylation modifications, the major ones mapped. And so that's a pretty good start. Now, at the same time, because of the disease relevance of chromosome 21, one can test whether or not this information, as it's being developed, is impacting what we don't understand about trisomy of chromosome 21 and the diseases behind the trisomy of chromosome 21 in general. So now I'm going to give you two more examples. So for patients with Down syndrome, they have, um, they actually have four times the rate of type one diabetes. They have 10 times the rate of thyroid disease to those in the general population, all because of immune aspects, mainly of what's happening in the thymus. And so the mechanistic insight that we're going to be able to get by saying, okay, the universe is only these proteins, 10% of the genome. The payoff may be considerable insight into not just the leukemias, not just the developmental defects associated with the cardiovascular problems, but also diabetes and, um, and uh, thyroid disease and even celiac disease, all of which are linked to this 10% of the genome being expressed at 50% higher level. So there are immediate ways of, of testing cost for benefit, whether the benefit is biological insight, whether the benefit is identifying the proteins themselves and their major sites of expression, and whether the benefit is clinical relevance. So all of these three happen to be plugged in to chromosome 21. So it's it really is... Um, um, a, it, in my mind, a prescient choice as to what might be the pilot project. And that, in fact, was put together in the original white paper that Tommy, Matthias, Yulin, and I put together a couple of years ago now uh, in order to try to see how this project might be launched. Let, could you perhaps be, you know, um, we're going to have Rudy Abersall next week at... Um, uh, what time? We're, we're doing it early. We're going to go on at 10 a.m. Pacific, uh, 1 p.m. Eastern time. Um, and he'll, he'll go on into great detail about the methodology. Uh, 
But perhaps you could describe, you, you know, we're going after chromosome 21 as a pilot project. How, why, how do you go from genes to, to proteins? How does the mass spec work? And why would you select, uh, how do you select a, a chromosome-based approach to proteomics? So how does, how, does, how does it quickly, like kind of a... a, a, so, a so, first, so, as, so as Tommy already indicated, we have, because antibodies are raised and they're being screened to various um, uh, um, samples of organs from humans that are available to pathologists right now, where we already have a rough idea of what organs are expressing some of the major known proteins of chromosome 21. We already have transcriptional data which indicate what are the major organs that are expressing major genes from chromosome 21. And we have insight into the organs most affected by chromosome 21, uh, trisomy of chromosome 21 from the clinicians. So we already have this enormous wealth of data that allows us to focus on what parts of the human body should we be sampling in order to now characterize the proteins and uh, identify what it is that they are, how, how abundant they are, what their partners are, and what their modifications are. So, so that information is, is ready right now. What Tommy and I do specifically to overcome the dynamic barrier um, the dynamic range barrier in mass spectrometry, and Dr. Abersall next week, Rudy, will have techniques that he's developed to overcome that uh, directly at the mass spectrometer. What we do as biologists is we go into the cell and we will pluck out those parts of the cell where the proteins are present at their highest abundance. I'm going to give you an extreme example. If you want to detect insulin in the plasma, it is present at 10 to the minus 11th molar. To give you some idea of how low a concentration that is, imagine that you had one molecule or one protein in the volume of a bacterium such as E. coli. The lowest concentration it could be in E. coli is 10 to the minus 8th molar. Yet insulin in your plasma is present at 1 1,000th that concentration. Now, wouldn't you rather characterize insulin if you wanted to, to detect in its major site of expression in the beta cell, where in the granule of the beta cell, the secretory granule, it's present at crystalline concentrations, right? Hundreds of milligrams per mil. And so mm -hmm. consequently, what Tommy and I do is we don't go and characterize insulin in the plasma. That's... a that's an incredibly difficult problem. We go and pluck out the granule from the beta cell where it's present at crystalline concentrations and technically determining its abundance, figuring out from the beta cell what its role is, is a far easier strategy. And that's how we do it. So in each of these organs, getting the organelles which are, um, uh, which are expressing the proteins is what Tommy and I do. And then these organelles, the small little organs in the organelles, are then following the methodologies which the entire field of proteomics has built up over the last 10 years to reproducibly and quantitatively characterize the abundances of these proteins in these samples. The way it does that right now 
is the proteins are broken down into peptides by using a, a, a digestion protocol, trypsin. And then those peptides, the sequences of those peptides are deduced by the mass spectrometers, basically by fragmenting the peptides and matching the matches of the matching the masses of the fragmented peptides to those of the parent peptide, which was not fragmented by the mass spectrometer. And it just so happens that the mass spectrometer fragments peptides where there are peptide bonds between amino acids. So you end up reading the sequence of the peptide. And so it's a high throughput protein sequencing machine, which just like the new deep DNA sequencing machines, counts the number of times it does that, and that's the abundance of your protein. There are other methods which Dr. Abersal has, has refined in order to give you another estimate of the abundance of the protein. And that's based on a mass spectrometer's way of doing an ELISA or a radioimmunoassay. And he'll explain that next week. These methods are robust. They have been well followed over the last 10 years or so. And they're, they're what we use to give us the protein abundances and to deduce the entire protein sequences of what we're seeing. And that's that sort of strategy that's also used to look at the protein partners and also to look at the post-translational modifications. Even the splice isoforms are picked up this way because the power of the new generation of mass spectrometers, just like the deep DNA sequencers, is that they can do so many um, uh, runs and so many analyses at a tenfold greater uh, depth than they previously were able to do. And now you pick up the splice isoforms where the peptides which match the protein sequences which span two different exons are found. And there you absolutely nail down the protein isoform that you're picking up in your sample. And if there's more than one protein isoform, the mass spectrometer will sort it out and give you the relative abundances of all the protein isoforms. So this is an amazing technology which is available us to do right now. And that is, the, that is roughly how the technology works. Now, Amos Barrock is a specialist in handling the data of how you now match these to the protein sequences. And that is a whole new part that the bioinformatics community along with the mass spec community have developed in tandem in order to make the actual data resource that you get of immediate value to the general biologist or the clinician. So I think that roughly summarizes the technical aspects, although I can go in greater detail, Mark. <laughs> That's amazing. It's, it's, it seems like this is the tricorder. Right, it's the ability to monitor the presence, the concentration of of the our, our, uh, the units that make up the human body, down to um, you know exquisite level of detail, and um, really uh, give you a picture of what's going on. Um, it, how precisely can it detect a, a pro? How does it? In terms of mass, so you have a protein of a certain mass that flies, you chop it up, you fly it through the machine. Um, how, does it, how does it fly? How far does it fly? How does it stick? How does it detect? Um, so the late, did, late, the, uh, the late John Fenn, who, who passed away recently, and other in, investigators in the field, de developed this method of allowing not just peptides, whole proteins 
to be able to be um, sprayed into the mass spectrometer by this electrospray method, he and Matthias Mann uh, uh, really pursued uh, in great depth, um, and allow us then to, to measure the time that this peptide takes in order to reach uh, basically a detector in the mass spectrometer. And that gives you uh, an estimate of its mass to charge ratio. And so um, these, these are, 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 are methods that are as well established now as a spectrophotometer uses to measure absorbances and deduce concentrations based on whatever is absorbing the material, either for nucleotides or for, um, or for amino acids or for proteins or whatever. So, so, so these methods are now so well established and the mass accuracy of the mass spectrometers are so great that they will, they will their, mass, their mass accuracy right now is routinely a tenth of a proton in terms of mass that they can pick. <laughs> and so, so this, is, this is a technology that was developed by folks like Rudy Abersold, Matthias Mann, John Yates, John Fenn, which is now just routine for any biologist to use. It really is, in terms of its mass accuracy, able to detect unambiguously uh, uh, peptides of specific sequences and be crystal clear in terms of what it is that it's looking at. So, I, I mean, Rudy will take you through the workings of the mass spectrometer far better than what I can do, um, uh, or even Tommy, because at the end of the day, Tommy and I are biologists and use the mass spectrometer for trying to make the biological discoveries that we're supposed to be paid to, to, do, to make. Uh, just wanted to add, add to that, uh, John. Uh, yes. So, so, so one thing that uh, I think one should bear in mind is that uh, there is a continuous, really uh, uh, amazing development. So, so doing mass spectrometry 10 years ago or, or five years ago, or even a couple of years ago, as compared to today, is, 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 uh, is, is really like night and day. And this continues. So, so uh, uh, three, four, five years from now, uh, what we can do today, uh, we can do even better and even better and even better uh, 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 in the future. And this technology is driven by people who are extremely innovative in the uh, academic uh, arena. But at the same time, <clears throat> I shouldn't forget that uh, companies... Uh, the industry are, is, is a major force in, in, uh, in developing these technologies. And I, I, uh, uh, I used to coordinate the European uh, uh, network in microscopy, and uh, there we, we, uh, we did this together with the companies because the companies are so embedded in the uh, needs of the uh, biologists in terms of imaging, but that's the same here. In terms of mass spectrometry, the, the industry is really closely embedded uh, with, the, uh, uh, with the academic uh, researchers, pushing the technology continuously to, through uh, uh, innovation. Uh, but it's not just uh, uh, academics. There are a lot of uh, smart people within the engineering, within the physics, etc., that all contribute to this enormous uh, uh, revolution. Um, John, would you? I, I think we uh, we have a few more minutes. Um, it'd be really great to 
get um, the, a little bit of the framework for the uh, uh, the chromosome 21 uh, project. So we, we sort of now have a, a grasp of sort of how it works. Is there and we, we, we kind of you, you brilliantly described how those uh, the diseases uh, the information that could relate to modern medicine. Um, so I'm wondering, do you have any thoughts or, or ways to present? Because this is really complex material, by the way. <laughs> I'm struggling because even even with you know a PhD from McGill, great school. <laughs> you guys are with McGill. Uh, worked quite a bit with John too, and he he was a great help in, towards my PhD. And I thank you. For <laughs> this is hardcore material. This is this is really the. It takes like a comprehensive understanding of biology to see where and how this gets into the context of, of, of medicine, right? Um, so when, when is the pilot project going to start? Has it started? So it has not, well, I mean, uh, I think um, as Tommy pointed out, antibodies are being made by Matthias Eulen right now to every predicted protein coding gene. Um, and so those are in progress and probably the entire genome will be finished certainly within five or 10 years by that approach and uh, where you'll have some sort of antibodies to, uh, to representative proteins. Uh, with respect to launching the project on chromosome 21, uh, or any chromosome for that matter, uh, the Human Proteome Organization in Sydney, uh, the, at last year's meeting in Sydney, launched an effort to say, let's start the Human Proteome Project. Next Tuesday in Toronto, there's a meeting of the Canadian Proteomics Network. It's the second meeting. The first one was in Barbados in January that Tommy and I coordinated with them, uh, where they will decide whether or not chromosome 21 is something that Canada should go, uh, Canada should go forward with, or perhaps another chromosome, or perhaps two chromosomes. I'm uh, the, the original white paper that Tommy and I and Matthias Eulen and other folks put together had proposed chromosome 21 as the pilot project so that's still my favorite pilot project and uh, and so but so far uh, even though the community and the human proteome organization and the canadian proteomics network has said we're eager to do it um, the actual uh, execution of the project has not yet begun other than the fact that in each and every lab we're getting set up to try to get the samples ready to try to do the analyses but to do it in the coordinated method way that tommy outlined at the beginning where many labs are coordinated together to focus on the samples that are generated simply to really map comprehensively and quantitatively the proteins of chromosome 21 that has yet to be Put together, and that's what we're hoping we'll be able to do uh, in a very short period of time. But certainly, the meeting in Toronto on Tuesday, next Tuesday, is meant to address that issue with all the funding agencies. It's amazing. It's it's. Uh, this is one of the. Uh, I think you know. You mentioned a tumor suppressor. That uh, there's obviously a tumor suppressor, but it's not clearly understood which it is or how it's working. And if you could uh, pull that out and. Uh, you know, turn cancer into a chronic disease rather than a, a lethal uh, uh, um, situation. It, it'd be fantastic. 
Um, this and is I think pretty it's reasonable. I think it is reasonable to hold us to that bar to say that, well, if you're going to map these proteins, we do demand some mm -hmm. mechanistic insight and some clinical relevance. And I think that's reasonable. Well, um, I, I, if, you know, if <laughs> I feel like just throwing money through the, the, uh, through the camera here. <laughs> <laughs> you 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 tell a you 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 present a very compelling case for the next stage of uh, what I, I can say the next we, stage. We sell used cars uh, on the side. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but you and you understand how those cars work to the atomic level, which means yes. <laughs> it's amazing. It's really great stuff. You know this this project that you guys are doing. When I first read the 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 the, the paper in Nature um, Methods, it really um, it's exciting that you guys are, are taking on an ambitious venture and doing it with, uh, you know, aggressively and presenting it with a tremendous level of uh, um, compellingness that it's moving biotech forward at a, uh, in a significant way. I, I think this is kind of the perfect uh, show, although, you know, the material is fairly um, rich in, in information here. <laughs> they require a second <laughs> listen. I'll probably listen back and, and get a lot out of it. Um, you know, it is it defines very well what futures in biotech is about, and trying to understand is where the next where medicine is going and where our understanding of human uh, biology is going. And you guys are really at that frontier. So I really thank you for uh, for coming on the show and sharing your time uh, with us. Well, thank you very much, Mark. We really are really grateful for this opportunity. Yeah, thank you, Mark. I think we've got a great show. That was um, some uh, very insightful uh, thoughts and very, um, it's, it's almost like the first part, you know, and again, we're going to record with uh, um, uh, Rudy Abersold next week. But even then, I think this really is going to be a, a, a reoccurring theme uh, over the next year. And I really wish you guys the best at, um, uh, you know, really moving this forward. Um, it's, it's going to be really great. I can't wait to have a mass spec in my lab. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and John, I'm going to be calling you. <laughs> um, okay. So I will let you go. Um, I, before, we, before we go, I'm going to just go through the thank yous. Um, uh, so we do a recording so we can edit here, Burke, if you could put a marker. I'd like to thank our guests, uh, Dr. John Bergeron. He's professor and chair of the Department of Anatomy and Cell Biology at McGill University. Thank you, John. I'd also like to thank Dr. Tommy Nielsen. He's professor in the Department of Medicine at McGill University and Canada Research Chair in Proteomics and Systems uh, Medicine. Thank you guys very much for coming on the show. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Mark. Um, I'd also uh, like to thank uh, Brendan Glenn, who's from Med City News, who's doing a piece on uh, futures in biotech and uh, on me. <laughs> There's Brandon. Uh, go check out Med City News. Uh, there's, there's a really great source for what's going on in medicine, um, certainly in, in, the, in the Midwest as well. Um, I'd like to thank Burke McQuinn for handling the audio and video boards and recordings today. Thank you, Burke. And uh, the team that make this possible, Leo Laporte, Lisa Kinsel, Frédéric Louis, uh, Eileen Rivetta, Tony Wang, Mike Taylor, John Salina, Jess Stewart, and uh, Jason Howell, and the rest of the team in Petaluma. I haven't met everybody there yet. Um, Lastly, I'd like to thank Phil Pelsey and Will Hall for the opening and closing themes. If you have any comments or suggestions or questions, um, uh, you can reach me at mark at twit.tv. It's M-A-R-C at twit.tv or on Twitter at 
uh, Mark Pelletier, M-A-R-C-P-L-L-E-T-I-E-R. Futures in Biotech, I'm Mark Pelletier.